Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The path to full voting rights for all U.S. citizens was long, and for too many Americans, a battle that had to be won. Today is Election Day. Your role in voting is essential to our democracy. Please remember that as you vote today. Later this hour, we'll hear about the art of storytelling with the creatives behind the Moth Radio Hour. And artistic director Jamil Jude will tell us about True Colors Theater Company's celebration for its 20th anniversary. First, Comedian Joel Kim Booster delights in bashing Asian stereotypes in his stand-up, on screen, and in his writing. Booster played the role of Nicholas, the hilarious assistant to Maya Rudolph's character Molly Novak in the series Loot. You might have seen his recent Netflix stand-up special, Psychosexual, or her jokes he wrote for shows like Big Mouth and Billy on the Street. Joel Kim Booster will perform at the Red Clay Comedy Festival in Atlanta on November 13th at Variety Playhouse. And he joins me now via Zoom ahead of the big show. Joel, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. You were born in South Korea, but quickly adopted by your American parents in suburban Chicago. Would you talk about growing up there? Listen, it was a mixed bag. There were a lot of really wonderful parts about growing up there. I had a very loving family uh, as a child and you know, it, suburban Chicago is is a beautiful place to leave, uh, <laughs> to, to grow up. My community was largely uh, white. Uh, there was it was not a super diverse area of the Chicago suburbs. And so that was a little tough for me growing up, being the only Asian kid in my family and the only Asian kid in my, you know, sort of immediate community as well. So it was fairly isolating as well. But you know, my parents always made me feel loved, which was mm. the most important thing. Absolutely. 
you've been quoted as saying, I knew I was gay before I knew <laughs> I was Asian. <laughs> There's so much to unpack with that. When did you first unpack your adoption story with your parents, and how did they help you understand being part of a racial minority in America? You know, my parents, they were very open with it from the time I was a child. I knew that I was adopted. You know, my earliest memories, I knew I was adopted. They they never hid that or anything like that. The, the first time, though, that I really sort of understood that I was of a different race than my family was when we went to a family reunion in Alabama, in Birmingham, and where a lot of my mom's side of the family is from. And I just remember sort of standing amongst, you know, 40 some of my relatives and taking this large composite photo and realizing looking around realizing that I was the only one who looked like I did and that was a real sort of paradigm shifting moment for me as a kid because it was the first moment that I truly understood that I was different from everyone else in my family and you know my parents for uh, as loving as they were, were not super well equipped to help me process that, I don't think. My parents were very much of the school of thought of that, you know, we're all the same, you know, we don't see you any differently. And so you shouldn't see yourself any differently from the rest of the family, which is, you know, well-intentioned, obviously. But I think for me, it would have been helpful to have a better understanding of sort of what, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have anyone to talk to about any of the experiences I was having as a racial minority in that community. So it was a little bit difficult, especially as I got older, because I just didn't really have anyone that I could process it with. Hmm. I loved your performance in the Apple Plus TV show, Loot, with the hilarious Maya Rudolph. Thank you so much. Oh, you were fantastic. You played the devoted assistant to Maya Rudolph's billionaire character. And I've read that the show's creators wrote the part with you in mind. Would you tell us about your relationship with the creators of Loot and what it's like working with Maya Rudolph? Yeah, absolutely. Matt Hubbard, who's the co-creator with of the show with Alan Yang, he wrote on a, an NBC show that I was on very briefly called Sunnyside. And it was sort of famously the lowest rated premiere in NBC history. So the show did not last very long, but it was an incredible experience. And I had a lot of fun and I got to meet people like Matt, who got a sense of who I was as a performer and you know, obviously wanted to work with me again. And, you know, Alan and I have known each other for a little bit, just sort of cir circling each other as, you know, two Asian American people working in the comedy space. So I think, you know, Matt having that experience really had a sense for what I could do and knew that I could handle this part. I still had to audition, you know, there was still a process for it. I, but you know, it was one of those things where it was basically mine to lose, mine to mess up if I didn't bring it to this audition. And working with Maya has been incredible. I mean, Maya is an icon to me. I grew up watching her on Saturday Night Live. She would not love to hear that part that I grew up watching her, but <laughs> she really, I, I am, you know, imprinted on me really early a sense my uh, and helped shape my own sort of comedic sensibilities from a young age and so to get to work alongside her was really surreal and wonderful and you know I was I was crossing my finger I was like if she is awful 
then it, it will completely destroy my childhood in any sense Aww. of self. And luckily that wasn't the case. Maya is incredible and incredibly supportive and incredible parent. I think, you know, it's sort of an anomaly sometimes in this industry when you work to have someone to work alongside someone at her level who still wants to drive her kids to soccer practice. And she's just, yeah, that's just the kind of person that she is. She's so down to earth. She's so normal and doesn't, has not let any of her massive, massive success and fame go to her head, which is really a wonderful influence to sort of be around as I'm sort of, you know, gaining traction in my own career. It's uh, really wonderful to see what grounds her and what keeps her sort of on earth. In addition to your fabulous interaction with her character, Molly. I love the scenes with you and Howard. And I, I wondered, they almost felt improvised at times. Was there any of you in that? Oh, absolutely. Ron and I have known each other as we're both stand-up comedians and we've known each other on that circuit for many, many years. And it was really easy, I think, you know, to slip into the chemistry that we found together. Both of our characters aren't super dissimilar from who we are as people. And our friendship is very much similar to Howard and, and Nicholas's friendship as well. And it was so easy. And I think like, it's so I'm so lucky to get to play with someone who I'm so comfortable with. I think that's a big, you know, aspect of why those scenes feel, you know, partly improvised because they give us a lot of leeway. We get the scene pretty immediately as, as scripted, and then we get to move on and have a little fun. And it's, it's a real joy to get to, to do that with someone that I really respect and admire. Wait, we have to back up. Even just talking with you for this short time, I have trouble believing you are as narcissistic as Nicholas <laughs> Joe. Um, you know, there's a little seed of that in my... in. <laughs> deep down inside of me, of course, I think like I wouldn't be in this industry if I didn't have a little bit of narcissism. I think that's a prerequisite for most people working as entertainers, but um, it's definitely magnified and, and blown out when it comes to Nicholas. But I think that our dynamic is certainly very similar to who we are as people. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with comedian, actor, and writer Joel Kim Booster. You also wrote and starred in Fire Island, the feature film streaming now on Hulu. This movie is all you, Joel. It's your <laughs> baby. Tell us what happens in Fire Island. Fire Island is uh, it's a modern day retelling of Pride and Prejudice set on the iconic Fire Island, which is just off the coast of Long Island in New York City. It is at least a, about a, 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 a good portion of it, about a couple miles worth of Fire Island has historically been a gay enclave, a real safe haven for queer people of all stripes. And since the, you know, the 1930s, really. And in this movie, myself and a group of my my closest friends go for our annual vacation. And there, I desperately try to get my best friend laid. And that is sort of the, the, the beginning, the, the general setup of the movie. And from there, it sort of follows similar beats to Pride and Prejudice in the same way that Clueless sort of followed similar beats to Emma. And, you know, it's a comedy, but it deals with a lot of issues of race and class and 
sexuality and the ways in which specifically gay men sort of discriminate within our own community. And it, you know, it, not in a heavy handed way, but it does, you know, that is definitely running on, in the background of, of the movie. You talked about watching Maya Rudolph as a kid. Margaret Cho co-stars in Fire mm. Island, and I know she's been a major influence on you. Yes. How did you get her on board? <laughs> it was actually quite easy. That that part was originally written to be an older gay man, and we had it cast, and the, the actor that we had cast unfortunately had to drop out for a different project, a scheduling conflict, and we were sort of at a loss. We didn't know exactly what we were going to do next, and right around the time that we had to recast it, Margaret's people reached out and said, you know, she saw the press release about the movie. She would love to be involved in any way, just a small part, any sort of cameo. She would love to cameo in the mo in the movie. And Andrew Ahn and I, the director, sort of just looked at each other and we were like, oh, well, actually, I think she could play this part. I, and it didn't even really require a ton of rewrites to make it an older gay man to Margaret Cho. But she really infused a lot of herself into that part as well. There's a there's a scene at a dinner table where she's telling a story from her own time as a young person on Fire Island. And that story is actually a real Margaret Cho story because she had a real connection to the island as herself. And I think it made it so much more special to have her there, not only personally for me as someone who's admired her and, and has really found her work kind of transformative as I was coming up, but also just as someone who loves Fire Island and it was nice to have someone who is connected to the history of that place so intimately. You must have been pinching yourself <laughs> when her people reached out to yeah, you. Yeah, it was, it was definitely very surreal and strange, but, you know, a huge dream come true. And, and she's just been a joy to get to know. And what a tribute to you to have yeah. this totally game-changing comedian you grew up admiring asking to be in your film. Yeah, it wow. was, um, there's nothing quite like it. I, I, I recommend it for everybody. Uh, <laughs> if they can. Everybody who can write and act. Yeah. Oh, easy. It's poignant how the vacationers in Fire Island all know each other from co-working at a soul-crushing brunch <laughs> restaurant job serving mimosas to rude white people, the characters have earned their escape. They deserve this vacation. Did you ever work in the service industry as you were coming up in comedy? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had several restaurant and fast food and, you know, dining jobs over the course of my life. You know, I, I waited tables for two years. 99% of the movie really is ripped from the headlines of my own life in one way or another, and that very much included. Wow. Now, for reasons almost impossible to understand, the wider field of comedy still resists minorities. It seems that for you to have carved a path, Joel, you've taken on various personas to endear yourself, mm -hmm. like what you once called your hot idiot persona. <laughs> How do you feel now about curating presentations of yourself? 
to get past the presumptions of audiences and majority white gatekeepers in the business. It's really difficult. And it's it, I'm in an interesting position right now in my career where I have the opportunity to really sort of take a lot of the power back and really have an opportunity to shape you know, this next sort of era for myself. And it's, it's difficult, because I think there's a lot of assumptions, you know, the more well known I become in the industry, and the more success that I have, the more assumptions are hoisted on me, about what kind of person I am, about who I am. And, and so that becomes very difficult. And it becomes the calculus of, of who I present on stage becomes much more difficult, because, you know, I, I, when I was sort of in the era of being a hot idiot, you know, it was fun to sort of cast myself as a narcissist who wasn't very bright. But unfortunately, when that, at a certain point, that became less creatively interesting for me because initially when I started that persona, it was really anathema to what I think a lot of people considered Asian Americans to be. Mm -hmm. You know, we were quiet, we were humble, we were not sexually viable, and we were smart. And I think that, you know, I really wanted to resist that. And I think that, you know, the attitude towards Asian Americans has really shifted in the last decade or so uh, since I've been doing stand-up. And so I, I sort of left it behind because it didn't feel interesting anymore. It didn't feel necessary anymore. And so I'm still trying to figure out what this next phase looks like for myself. And again, you know, I'm battling a lot of these assumptions that people have based on my social media presence or basically, you know, a fraction of who I am as a person. They're making, you know, they're sort of making it the whole of my personality. And that's really frustrating and really difficult to navigate. But, uh, you know, I'm working on it. Well, how would you hope to be seen going forward? You know, it's difficult because I don't necessarily need to be seen completely as I am in my work. You know, I, I, I want to be seen as authentic, I think, more so than anything. And that's, that includes the good, the bad and the ugly. And I think a lot of people either only want to see the good or if you let them see a little bit of the bad and the ugly, that's all they extrapolate from your work. And so it's a balancing act to make sure that the authenticity is there without any one of those areas sort of overpowering the other. So lots of us in Atlanta are excited about your visit. I'm very excited to come. What can we expect to hear in your set at the Red Clay Comedy Festival? Will you perform a full-length set? It is going to be a full-length headlining set, about 50 minutes to an hour. It's all new material. It's all stuff that I've been working on since the, the special premiered. And so it's very much a work-in-progress show still. I'm, I'm still figuring out a lot of the contours of the set. I mean, it's all good. It's all funny. But it's a lot of new territory for me. You know, this is the first time I've been writing material about being in a relationship. I've never been in a serious relationship while I've been a stand-up before. And so writing about being in love is, is a lot different than writing about searching for love. And I found that out. And um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been really, really invigorating. And, you know, I think there's still going to be a lot of familiar in the set, but a lot of surprises and still a lot of crowd work, because that is how I write new material. And that is what I really love to engage in is, is getting to know people in my audience. Actor, comedian, and writer Joel Kim Booster. 
You'll perform at the Variety Playhouse this Sunday, November 13th, as part of Atlanta's Red Clay Comedy Festival. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll explore the art of storytelling with the creatives behind the Moth Radio Hour. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Storytelling is essential to the human experience. It's how we share our lives with friends and family and how we develop deeper connections. If you especially appreciate storytelling, you may well have encountered the moth, started 25 years ago in a tiny New York City apartment. The Moth has grown into nothing less than a storytelling phenomenon, and their platform has enabled countless people to tell their true personal stories. The Moth Radio Hour, heard on WABE Sundays at noon, is a showcase of stories from live moth events. And on the show, we hear the humanity of people being vulnerable, raw, funny, and above all else, honest. In celebration of the moth's 25th anniversary, they've released How to Tell a Story, a book that dives into their story development process. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently spoke with the artistic director of The Moth, Catherine Burns, and John Good, an Atlanta-based, Emmy-nominated author who's regularly a host of Moth Story Slams in our city. Here's Burns explaining how her time with The Moth began. I moved to New York City in 2000 and I had friends who were going. Like at the time it was a little bit underground. There was no radio show. Um, It was a live show that was almost exclusively in New York City. I went to my first moth event in the summer of 2000 and fell madly in love with it. And it just Mm -hmm. became one of these people that, you know, comes to every show and I became a volunteer. I, I, I handed out programs, you know, anything I could do to help them 
I eventually put my name in the hat at the story slam and actually was the last name picked and tied for first place to win. So then I was at the very first grand slam, which was terrifying, but so exciting. (laughs) Um, I then like got to know the two moth staff members at the time um, and became a volunteer in our community and education program, which we still have. So that's how at the end of 2001, when the moth's founding artistic director quit, I raised my hand and was hired first as a producer and then became the artistic director in late 2003 and have been it ever since. So and it's such a labor of love for me and everyone else. That's awesome. And as artistic director, what is your main role? So I'm the artistic lead of the company, which means that anything that happens at the moth artistically, whether it's the live events, a radio show, our books, you know, anything that the moth touches, I'm ultimately bottom line responsible for the quality of it. And I also lead the creative team and trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to keep that quality high, uh, which includes like what stories are there out there that haven't been told that need to be told, you know, who just put their name in the hat as a slam in, you know, Wisconsin, who might be the next star, you know, like just trying to constantly bubble up all of the ideas and create space for that. And also often when we do something new, I'm the lead person trying to figure out exactly how we're going to make it work, you know, working with the team. So it's really just the bottom line of all things artistic at the moth. And I'm also one of the radio hosts. That makes sense. And so speaking of doing new things, why did you and your team decide to write how to tell a story? Well, we thought about doing it for years. I mean, obviously storytelling is one of the oldest art forms in the world. We talk about that in the book, but you know, this sort of moth style storytelling where it's personal stories, put on stage, being sort of acknowledged as an art form um, in this very specific way is something that really began in many ways with the moth back in 1997. And so we've spent years trying to figure out how to help people tell their stories. Thousands and thousands of people, we're up to 50,000 stories told now. Um, oh my gosh. And so we've just learned a lot over the years. And so as we were coming to our 25th year, I mean, many of us have been around for a very long time. I mean, of the five authors of the book, I think the person who's been at the Moth the least long has been with us for 14 years. Oh, that's so impressive. Oh, yes. So there was a great desire for us to write down everything that we've learned and to write it in a way that wouldn't just be about people telling stories of the Moth, hopefully, but would also be for somebody who wants to tell a really great story in a job interview, someone who wants to connect with their grandmother and try to you know, tell her stories, ask her stories, someone who might have to give a eulogy, which is one of the hardest Mm. storytelling situations you can be in because you're telling a story about someone you've just lost and there's been no time to process and then you're there trying to represent them. So we also just want to represent how the moth is not just something that's about the people who work there. It's really an entire community. I mean, this art form has been discovered and built and crafted by thousands of people who have shown up with open hearts and vulnerability to participate. And so one of the things I love about the book is it's not just the five authors who were a part of it, but more than 220 people contributed either with quotes about storytelling or quotes from their own stories, you know, to be examples of how to tell a good story. And so my great hope is that this book really is what we meant it to be, which is a love letter from the entire Moth family to the world. Aww. And speaking of quotes, John, you're quoted in the book Mm -hmm. as saying, stories are what turn friends into family. Would you elaborate on that thought? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that when we hear each other's stories, we discover that we are far more in common than we have differences. 
that to the you know to the naked eye and as the world sometimes tries to convince us that we're this group of of strangers right with nothing in common but when you sit in the moth when you sit in that audience and you hear someone tell their story and you say oh wow either you know that's my story i know someone whose story that is or um i i have nothing to do with that story but it has hit me it has impacted me so deeply it brings people together and so i've seen night after night at the end of the night People from the audience will go up to the storytellers, people who they may share nothing in common with, you know, race, gender, um, you know, economic circumstances. They share nothing in common and they stand there for 30 minutes after the show and they just talk to each other. Mm. And I think everyone just leaves with a better understanding of who that person is, who they are, you know, what it means to be in community and in relationship and that we can become family through these stories, regardless of our circumstance. Wow. So, John, aside from being a Story Slam host, you're also an excellent storyteller. What are your earliest memories of storytelling? My earliest memories of storytelling in my life come from uh, my father. My father is just a a very, very funny (laughs) storytelling uh, guy. He was just people would come to our house and just sit in our living room to hear my dad tell stories Mm -hmm. that he said he said they were all true. It's, it's, it's questionable. It's questionable. But he would tell these stories and people just loved it. And so as I got older, um, I guess I kind of maybe picked up some of this from him. So at Thanksgiving, it would be a, a common occurrence for people to sit around and say, so what's going on with you, John? And I would just tell them stories and they would just they would be so into it. It was amazing to me. But I never thought of it as like a I don't know. Like I was young then. I don't I don't know if I thought of it as like even storytelling. I don't know what I thought I was. I was just talking. You know, I was like, oh, I'm just talking. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, but yeah, it's it's my earliest, earliest memories. My my dad, man, he was a he was something. Catherine, I've read that you have a similar story growing up in the South and listening to porch tales from family. Is that right? That's right. Especially um, my paternal grandmother. Um always told the most amazing stories. She told stories from way back in our family. And um, I would just beg her to tell them again and again. People sometimes, because the way we rehearse the stories are like, how do you ever get tired hearing the same story over and over? I'm like, never, I would do anything to have my grandmother (laughs) sitting next to me right now, telling me the ones she's told me a thousand times, you know, one more time. So I definitely grew up in that tradition of, you know, Southern storytellers. That's lovely. Well, Catherine, you've guided hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many people through the process of sharing their lives on stage. What do you find most rewarding and most challenging about helping people develop their stories? My favorite part is when you're working with somebody and they start telling you the story one way and they're so sure about what the story meant to them. But as you dig into it with them and ask them questions, and they start thinking about whatever they were talking about as a story. I love when somebody will suddenly have a total aha moment and realize that maybe the story means something different to them or something deeper. You know, it's just, it's such an honor to witness that when you're working with somebody. So, I mean, that's my favorite part. Um, also just seeing people feel confident. Like people are usually very nervous before, before they go on stage, sure. but there's something that seems so wonderful about somebody walking out on the stage and feeling that love from the audience. We don't know what it is, but moth audiences are the greatest audience in the world. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're in Georgia or Kenya or Tajikistan, they mm-hmm. just show up and just want you to be yourself. And there's just such a supportive energy 
coming from them. It's kind of the opposite of what sometimes you feel at a comedy club. And, um, and so I love seeing that person walk out there so nervous that like, I'm actually monitoring them to make sure they don't just run away and jump in a cab or something <laughs> and take off. Um, and then walk out and in a minute, they feel that love of the audience and they get going and all of a sudden they just light up and they're filled with joy and they kind of float off the stage. And most people say they'd be happy to turn right around and go back out and do it again oh, <laughs> once they've done it the first time. That. And so that's the most rewarding part. Um, the hardest part, I mean, the, there's, many challenges part, but one is like when you're working with someone who feels like they don't have a story to tell, you know, and that they don't have the confidence in themselves trying to give it to them. You know, I've had this a few times where I'm trying to, where somebody just has such a wonderful story and they just can't come around to seeing it. And so then they're not willing to share it because they don't think it's worth sharing. And that always breaks my heart. But I, always, I keep saying my perfect reader for this book is someone who picks up the book, who's interested in storytelling, but maybe thinks they don't have a story and ends the book realizing that they have more stories than they can possibly imagine and then dares to go out and tell one to someone, like even if it's just their best friend over dinner, like telling a story they've never told before. Well, you guys created a book that genuinely helps people do that with a step-by-step process. There are rules to moth storytelling. What are some of the rules that you guys play by? Well, one rule is there's a time limit, is all of the stories need to stick to a time limit. At the slams, it's five minutes, but on the main stage, it's, we say like 10 to 12. Um, and that's really just to force choices, you know, that people, if, like many stories can be told in 10 minutes, but if you go practice, it'll just immediately, we have a lot of experiences this come out at about 20. Um, and so it's really just, a, it's like a contract with the audience that everyone's just going to take them a certain amount of time. Um, the stories have to be true. Now, we always say true is remembered by the storytellers because, of course, truth is very subjective. Memory is very tricky. We write about it a lot in the book. Um, we're actually so obsessed with truth that we originally had two or three more chapters about truth. Our editor was like, ladies, like, I'm not, you know, cut, right. Okay. Um, but so, like, that, a huge part of the cut thing is us just right going on and on more about truth. But um, so they have to be true and they have to, it has to be your story. I mean, so many people get up and they want to tell their grandfather's story or the story, you know, of a loved one they have that maybe died and they want to remember them. And that is actually well and good and fine. But we always, I joke that we're very self-absorbed at the moth in the sense that we want you to be self-absorbed. So if you get up on stage, even if you're telling a story about your grandmother, we want it to be through the lens of your own experience and what you got out of this interaction and not just some, like we need you to have witnessed it and been a part of it. Right. John, what am I leaving out? You do this at the slams. On every the day. <laughs> on the slam, at the slam, yeah. it's got to be on the theme, whatever the right, theme of the night right. is. So yes, it's got to be true. It's got to be about you. It's got to be on the theme. And it is a uh, timed and judged exercise at the slam. At the slam. Right, right. And do you guys have a rule about the microphone and touching the mic that might somehow relate to Run DMC? <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. So we've always, from the beginning they wanted the, to keep the mic on the stand. And part of it is to differentiate it from stand-up, but also we just find it's a, a way to really focus the energy to have that mic on the stand. So years ago, we had um, Daryl McDaniel, who's like the, one of the founders of Run DMC, you know, um, telling the story. And yeah, I, we were a little intimidated. I mean, th this is a man who's just like a complete legend. And he shows up and I just, I was really a new director at the time. I was pretty young and I could not bring myself to tell Daryl that he had to leave the mic in the stand. So he takes it off. I mean, 
there has never been a more aerobic telling of a story. I mean, he was squatting, he was standing up. It was like, so if you can use a video with him, you have a sense of what he was doing on that stage. Um, and it was wonderful, but it was, you know, a little distracting in its own way. But afterwards, he said to me, you know, Catherine, I, I see what you mean, how everyone else does it. And the next time I tell a story, I'm going to leave the mic in the stand. And we were like, what? You know, mic drop or like mic put back up. Anyway, we were like, this is unbelievable. And so ever since then, we never waver because our feeling is if a man who essentially helped create, you know, what we know is, I'm going to maybe say this wrong, but like the modern like hip hop movement, if like one of the founders of all of this, if he leaves the mic on the stand, then everyone else can too. So yeah, and it's a great equalizer. I find it to be yeah. It just puts everyone on the same level playing field. Whether you've done, you know, whether you've been on stage a million times like a DMC, or whether it's your first time on stage, it just evens everything out. So that a seasoned performer who knows that you know he's got the thing and he's whipping the cord around, and he's doing a thing. <laughs> And if you've never done it before, you might trip over the cord and fall yeah. down. You don't know. <laughs> right. So this keeps everyone just on the same level playing field. It's very I true. like that. I like <laughs> that a lot. Well, Catherine, occasionally during the development process, I've read that the question needs to be asked, what is the story you're trying to tell in one sentence? So yes. tell me, how does this exercise help storytellers? It helps people focus. And because like most stories that you're going to tell in 10 minutes could be probably an hour long story, you know, if you just included every bit of detail. And so part of the time limit is for, forces you to make choices and to focus it. And so we find that the one sentence can help you decide what the story is most about for you. Usually stories start out a little bit longer and you're trying to cut them down, but you make sure that what remains all supports what you're most trying to say. It's, it's intimidating to like start out with the one sentence so you don't want to, to start there. But as you start working on it, there's always that point where it kind of bloats out a little bit. I used to have, I was in marching band in high school and my band director would say, you know, that sometimes you have to get better, worse before you get better, better. So that's true of the moth too, <laughs> that sometimes things just like expand out a little bit. But in that process of trying to trim it down and making it really sing, you want to make sure that, you know, what you're most trying to say comes through and not clutter it with, you know, there's just only so many things that you can get into a 10 minute story. Yeah, especially yeah. if you want to tell it like concisely in a way that people can digest it, you know, in a way that like, that like moves well. Yeah, when you come to an event, especially if you come to like the story slam here in Atlanta, you'll hear the stories that move well, and then they get to the end. And when they get to the end, you feel it. When they get to the end, the whole room jumps up and claps because like, wow, what a, what a ride. And then you hear the stories where the person hasn't really thought it through and it meanders. And then it'll be like, yeah. And so, you know, that's that. Yeah. And, then, you know, you're like, oh, yeah. Well. So it's good. It's good to have like your one line, you you know, focus you in on definitely the, the, the direction of the story. That makes sense. So let's talk about these slams a little more in the section that you guys lovingly call going from page to stage. Yes. Why do you encourage people to be familiar with their material instead of memorizing their material? Well, memorization is tough. It's something I particularly really discourage, but we all do. The problem with memorization is that when you're so married to the page, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of people who want to memorize are, are writers because they're so married to their words. Mm. And when you're too married to your words, there's a chance that you're going to get up on stage and like two things could happen. 
one that we see all the time is that instead of being present on stage with the audience, the person is actually picturing the sheet of paper. I actually call this, um, I borrowed this from our, one of our former artistic directors, head in the desk drawer syndrome. We ended up cutting it from the book because all my fellow authors out argued that it was too confusing, which I can understand. But the idea is that you're standing <laughs> on stage and you're not actually present in your body. You're picturing the sheet of paper that's maybe at home in your desk drawer that has the written out version or in your purse. And you're just going down the page. And what that prevents is you from actually being present and alive at the moment in front of the audience. And like, often when people do this, like they talk right over applause breaks and things like that, for instance, mm. because they're just so trying to get through it that they're not paying attention to the reaction they're getting from the audience. Whereas if you just memorize bullet points and kind of know where you're going, that allows you to just tell it a little bit differently every time and be really present in it in a way that I think is so much more fun as a teller. Because it also might be like, sometimes somebody will improv some little thing. It'll be like the greatest moment of the story just because they're really present and they're kind of reacting off the energy of the audience a little bit. And you have that freedom if you have the out, you know, sort of an outline, you know, the beats, we might say, in your head. Um, the other reason not to memorize is because the, the biggest fear every storyteller has is they're going to blank and forget their story. And that's happened twice at the Moth in my time. I've heard there was one time before. And wow. every single time the person had memorized. And because the problem is if you've memorized it, you can forget it. Versus if you just have the bullet points, it's your story and you kind of know, you can picture in your head going from here to here. So, so that's like the reason we don't like to memorize. But uh, we do have you suggest memorizing two things though. One is your first line and the other is your last line. And the reason to memorize your first line is because when you start out, you'll be very nervous and it's just so reassuring to know exactly where you're going to start before you take off. And then we have found again and again, that if you don't memorize your last line, you run the risk of doing what some of our greatest raconteurs did in the early days. They would get to the end of their story and kind of like what John was saying a minute ago, they'll say, well, I guess that's my story and just wander <laughs> off the stage. And we'd be like, no, you want to land your story like a gymnast, you know, snap at the Olympics. So, yeah, but otherwise, you know, we really encourage people to get away from the memorization. Although some people still insist. There's a great storyteller, Ruby Cooper. I, I, mm. Ruby Cooper has this story that she's, I, I may have, I, I may have seen her tell it on stage 10 times. She has never told that story the same way twice. Amen. It is, it's amazing <laughs> to me. I love it. She, she tells it different in rehearsal. She tells it different on stage, <laughs> but she always this lands it because she'll say when I'm up there, I'm just remembering like, Right. I'm just remembering it. I'm just telling you the story as I remember it. And every time I remember it, I, I remember it a little differently. But it's That's always just the most excellent story. Well, for storytellers that aren't quite as seasoned as Ruby, John, do you have any advice for people who, you know, have to deal with stage fright? Yeah, I tell anyone who comes to the moth, it's much like what Catherine was saying. I'm like, everyone here is here to love you in this moth audience. Mm. Um, they're here to... to encourage you to lift you up. All they want to do is see you do your best. So uh, we did a moth in Athens, Georgia, and this delightful young lady came up and she would, I mean, she was shaking. She was shaking, shaking. And she was like, I'm so scared. And I said, if you want to, I'll sit in the front. Usually I sit to the side. I said, I'll sit in the front. You can tell it to me if you'd like to. And she was like, I'd like that. So I sat in the front and she just kind of told it to me and looked about. And then I came up afterwards and she burst into tears. She was so happy that she had done it. And mm -hmm. the crowd just gave her all the love in the world. 
And Aww. and she won. She won that oh, night. She yes. won. It was her first time ever telling the story. The story was excellent, and she won. And I, so I tell people at the moth, it's like how genuine you are with your story. That's what comes through. So I've seen people super practiced, and they lose to someone who's super genuine. Yep. So I'm like, bring your genuine story. Bring yourself. You know, don't don't give us who you think we want to see. Give us you. And I'm telling you, you you cannot lose. You can't lose. Even Amen. if you don't win, you can't lose. Yeah. As long as you're authentic, you got it covered. Yeah. Absolutely. I've seen so many first time people win in Atlanta. Like at least three times a person has walked in, and it, especially in Atlanta. I've seen uh, three people that walked in. They didn't even know what it was. They just, <laughs> they were like, oh, they're telling stories. No. So they sign up. And then I say, oh, it's a competition. They're like, oh, I didn't know. I said, oh, there's a theme. They're like, oh, I didn't know. And then, <laughs> then they they go out, they stand out there in that lobby for 15 minutes. They're like, okay, I've got it. I've got a story. And now I've seen three times they've won. That person has won. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's it. impressive. I've definitely seen it. it here too. Yeah. I love it. That is so impressive. So we have some events coming up in Atlanta soon. There is the theme of happy on August 22nd, and then a theme of juggling or how to juggle different things in your life on September 5th. John, will you be hosting both of those? I will be hosting both of those. Um, we just had one that was great. So it's a, it's a ball. I encourage everyone to come out. We're down at Theatrical Outfit. And um, it, it's just the time. Like, it's hard to describe. I, I, I was talking to a friend who, she said, when you told me about it, I don't think you you described it well enough. And I was like, I don't know how to describe it. I said, how would you describe it? And she said, to be honest with you, I probably would describe it. I would have described it the way you described it, which is not very good. She said, it's like, you got to come see it. She said, you got to come see it. I said, I know. That's what I tell everyone. I'm like, you got to come see it. I said, it will change your life. Catherine, I wanted to ask you one final question. I feel like you touched on it a couple of times in very humorous ways. But what was it like having so many co-collaborators on this book oh my it's it was people thought we were nuts you know that we lost our mind <laughs> every writer I know when I said we were five of us writing together they were like that sounds like a nightmare but honestly we had such a wonderful time maybe we, we had no idea when we signed the book contract that we were going to be writing this book over zoom during the middle oh. of you know at the at times of the epicenter of a global pandemic obviously but it really became a joyful thing where when so many people were so isolated, I mean, we've really been reflecting on this just recently. Every morning at 8 a.m., I got to log in and I was at Meg's house. I was at Jennifer's house. I was at Sarah's house. You know, I was at Kate's house. And we really lived, our, you know, we were at least on Zoom together four hours a day. But I think we had a record day where we were on like 14 hours and it was oh. two o'clock in the morning for Meg. Meg lives in Sweden. She married a Swede. So wow. she's, and at the time, Sarah Janess was driving masks through like California. So it would be literally dawn at Joshua Tree on Sarah's computer. And then Meg, you know, at nighttime in Sweden in the middle of the winter would be with the sun setting behind her. Um, but we, I think in the end, we feel like now what a gift it was that we had all of this time together doing it. Definitely like it got tricky at times, you know, there were just huge questions and it turns out we say things in different ways. I mean, I think we went into the book thinking that we all do everything the same way. And then we discovered that we actually don't in some ways. So like trying to figure out common language and trying to figure out also just the order and how to tell our own story. 
But in the end, you know, it was just, it was such a joyful collaboration. I mean, one of the things we were pr proudest of is that we first gave the show to, uh, when we first gave the book draft to Matt, our editor at Crown, who's wonderful, he couldn't tell who had written what part. And we we're like, wow, mm. that's our mind meld after all of these years, you know, that it sounds like one voice, even though we really wrote it all individually. And then we kind of put it together in a big, you know, long string and then edited it over many years. But I think it was, it was the only way to do it. For many years, we thought that maybe one of us would do it. But when, when push came to shove, we realized it was just something that it was not any one of our knowledge. In fact, it wasn't any, it, it wasn't just the five of us. It wasn't our collective knowledge. It was the knowledge of an entire community, as I mentioned in the beginning. And what a, you know, what an honor that we got to be the ones to help gather that and put it together. And so I think that if it worked with the five of us, that's why. It's because we were all there seeing our roles as serving a, a greater good, which is, you know, representing the moth community in this new space. Catherine Burns, Artistic Director for The Moth, with John Good, Atlanta author and host of Local Moth Story Slams. More information about how to tell a story is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, True Colors Theatre Company turns 20, and we'll celebrate with artistic director Jamil Jude. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. True Colors Theater is celebrating its 20th anniversary. For two decades, the company founded by Kenny Leon has brought Atlanta audiences a rich tradition of black storytelling while giving voice to bold artists from all cultures. True Colors artistic director Jamil Jude has been showcasing modern-day griots since 2017. It's really special to be celebrating the 20th anniversary of True Colors. It really cements our legacy and helps us build a path towards the future of the sustainability of a Black theater company in the Black Mecca in a city like Atlanta and what role we serve in the larger conversation around the American theater. True Colors is commemorating its 20th anniversary with a cabaret and fundraiser. This fundraiser is going to really allow people a chance to re-engage with True Colors. We have had so few opportunities to get back on stage because of the pandemic. And as we get ready to kickstart start this 20th anniversary, we're excited to ask people to support the theater in a different way. You know, most organizations will put on a one-night gala, but we're a theater company. We produce, and we haven't produced in so long. So we wanted to put on a little bit of a show and find ways to raise money. So I'm thankful for all of the artists who have contributed to True Colors over the past 20 years. They are coming back uh, for three performances to relive some of the iconic moments in True Colors history, as well as uh, help us announce the place that we'll present in our 20th anniversary season, which will kick off in earnest in February of 2023. 
The event takes place this Friday through Sunday at the Southwest Fulton Arts Center. More information is available on the website, truecolorstheater.org. Before we go today, I'd like to send a special message to a couple of recent donors. Happy birthday, Katie Green, and happy birthday to Sherry Richardson. We appreciate your being part of our City Lights community. And as a reminder to everyone, if you haven't yet done so, please go vote today. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Rick Steves joins us to talk about his new PBS series, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, airing on WABE-TV. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the hilarious Joel Kim Booster, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE at last. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.